0: At Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy, and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. I'm Lucy Houndsom. And I'm Charlotte Bond. Speculative fiction is no stranger to exploring issues of colonialism, particularly in science fiction, from first contact stories to wars over territories. While many such stories are extremely black and white, the realities of colonialism are far more murky. A colonial mindset shapes not just the colonised, but also the coloniser, and often in unexpected ways. It is natural that we recreate our history and stories of fictional worlds. After all, it has become part of the fabric of our identities. So why wouldn't it also be the case for the characters we imagine? But what can we learn from the reimagining and reframing of our collective traumas in fiction? In this episode, we are joined by C.L. Clarke, author of The Unbroken and The Faithless. Sheree will help us untangle the murky, ethical mess of her novels as we get to grips with colonialism in modern speculative fiction. So, Sheree, would you please introduce yourself to our listeners?
1: Hi, everyone. I'm Sheree, or C.L. Clark. Um, I am the author, as Megan said, of The Unbroken and The Faithless, which are the first two books of The Magic of the Lost trilogy. Um, I'm also the author of several short stories, and I've also been an editor at the uh, PodCastle short story podcast.
0: So your books explore the complexities of colonialism while also allowing for ethical murkiness, as I said, you know, and I found that really, really refreshing. But why did you want to show colonies that fought their colonizers as well as those who welcomed them? Because usually, you know, in a lot of things that I've seen over the years – you know, it tends to be from one perspective or another, or it's just very, you know, that very black and white thing. But you have instead gone for representing sort of both sides of the story. Why is that?
1: You know, I would say it probably is fairly common. I mean, I don't have like a, a ratio of historical... Moments of these are the colonies who fought but still succumbed to a colonizer, and these are the people who welcomed them. Um, But I would also say that plenty of people welcomed colonizers as visitors and did not intend for them to stay, but that's what they got. One of the things that I wanted to capture in The Unbroken in particular um, is with the Kazali colony, um, I wanted to talk about not necessarily. The fact that they were fighting, but just the different strata of people who are within that. So there are characters who fought the initial um, incursion um, and were unsuccessful and are now living with that failure. And then there are people who, at the same time as others were fighting, they were trying to figure out um, how to best work within this new framework that they knew was coming and that they assumed they would not be able to fight. So they were trying to figure out how to be successful within that um, incursion attack. And then we have the later generation of people who haven't known anything else because they grew up under a certain regime. And I think there are just, um, and those are just within the colonized uh, people. Um, we also have people who grew up outside of the colony, even though they were born there. And we have, of course, the perspective of the colonizers. And what I wanted more than anything was just to show all the different perspectives as many as I could, um, as intimately as I could, or not necessarily intimately maybe, but as nuanced as I could, uh, in a way that, let people see that these choices as human choices, not as right or wrong necessarily, because very often the choices that we make in life are right to some and wrong to others. Um, no matter how much they make sense to us, no matter what kind of position we were in as we made them, maybe we knew they were wrong, but we still needed to do them for some reason. Um, or we thought the ends justified the means, that kind of thing. I wanted to just as you said, I wanted to hang out in that ethical murkiness.
2: Let's talk a little bit about your main character, or one of your main characters, um, Terrain. Mm. Who, you know, her identity is very much tied up in her relationship to colonialism. She felt a sense of belonging, you know, even if under difficult circumstances, when she was part of the Empire. But in her new role, in your new book, uh, book 2 in the series uh, she feels a bit out of her depth and unsure of who she is anymore um so what did you hope to achieve by exploring terrain's struggle to find her identity
1: so in the first book she is you know trying to figure out what side of the struggle for freedom she wants to be in the struggle for sovereignty and so she doesn't know if she wants to be part of the people who raised her which is the empire or part of the people she came from who idealistically um, she is sometimes aligned with them and sometimes not. And I think, you know, by the end of the unbroken, she has aligned herself pretty staunchly with Kazal, um, the colony. And she wants, she believes that they deserve their freedom and that the empire should leave. And she also sees herself aligned as one of the Kazali, and what I really wanted to explore with the second book is that in the unbroken terrain has lost all of the power and standing she had with Balladair as a soldier. And so it seems like maybe she possibly went to the Kazali, you know, because she had no other power, and this was the only place she felt enfranchised. And so one of my one of the things that I was really interested in was, what she would do if, instead of being powerless, Balladair gave her all the power she'd ever wanted. Would she still believe in the right to Kazali freedom? Would she still believe that they deserved this power of their own if her power, her new power, could be weakened by giving them their own sovereignty because then she would be even cl- more closely allied with Balladair. and she has to negotiate that kind of her own personal power and what she might be able to achieve with that versus what she can achieve if if she has less power but Kazal has freedom I'm also interested in how she negotiates um, different types of power and how that settles into her identity as uh, like a fighter. She's definitely like she doesn't think she's not clever, um, but she's mostly considered herself... um, Strong in a physical prowess kind of way, and though she wanted to lead soldiers, um her war strategy hasn't she hasn't been able to test it really, and so going into a political realm is a very, very different kind of game for her, and I wanted to see how she felt about that kind of change in identity as well,
0: yeah, I love the how you sort of play with this idea of of where you come from versus who raised you and and how that plays into sort of the the colonialism aspect as well because it's you you can get so conflicted because yes someone may have raised you with you know maybe not in the best circumstances they can be horrible to you but you know that in a way is your family so it's you know, is really interesting when she struggles with like, where do I fit in? Who who do I align with? Yeah. It was very interesting to to read that. So I I appreciate that. <laughs> Thank you. But also I, I wanted to talk about um like in the second book, you've got Pruitt who mm. kind of is is like a nice counterpoint to terrain, but again someone who is really struggling with again, you know, the colonialism with these people, they stole me from my family, but they raised me and they trained me and, you know, what do I want? But I don't want the Cazale either. And, like, it's just, it, it's, again, you know, an, an interesting point of view and very different to Terrain and Luca, obviously, um, so, like, to your main protagonist. But it feels very interesting because it's quite because it's so different to your other, like, point of view characters. I mean, how did you go about constructing an empathetic voice?
1: (laughs) I'm laughing quietly over here to myself because – just the framing of this question, like, I think Pruitt is one of the most empathetic people, the, one of the most empathetic characters, and I had so much fun writing her. I almost kind of want to give her, like, her own book, <laughs> Um because she's just, like, I loved her voice. It came so quickly, so easily to me. She's, like just so raunchy and does so much for, for shock value, but she also doesn't give a shit about anybody or any like anybody's opinion of her. Um, but so much of that comes from her own relationship with um, her past and with Balladair So when I first tried to come up with these characters and sort of, Um, think about the different responses to colonialism, what I wanted really was just to show that not everyone's response, even if they look like they come from the same direction, is going to be the same because everybody is different and their circumstances, no matter how slightly, they vary from one another. And so um, one of the things that when I first even sat down to come up with her character in The Unbroken, it was... um, Like her and Thibaut, who is one of Terrain's other friends, they make this little um, trio of homies. Um, I wanted each of them to have a different opinion of Balladair. Like that was just how I started from the very, very beginning. Um, So Terrain was kind of the suck up. She didn't know anything. Like she barely remembered her past and it it was very easy for her to forget. And so she was easily bought by Balladair and she bought into the notion of reward for... Service essentially reward for obedience, Um, and Pruitt and Thibault were both older when they were taken, and Thibault was taken unhappily, and Pruitt was actually, as you find out in the Faithless, she was exchanged for money. Her parents were given money um, to to send her with Balladair, and so she has a very particular bitterness uh, toward her home. which you can tell through some of the things she does in the faithless, but she also does not feel that same kind of connection to Kazal because it's not her home. And she just generally has a sort of apathy towards everyone, Balladair and the Shalin colonies, because nobody especially was there for her. No one actually cared for her except for her fellow soldiers. So those are the people she has the most uh, connection to. And so, Knowing why she was the way she was, and I suppose this is just like writing any good character, but I just, I knew why she was like she was. I knew what made her sad. I knew what what started the seed of bitterness and I knew the way she tried to drown it. So she tries to drown it in, you know, in other women. She tries to drown it in sometimes in aggression. And so the Faithless is kind of her transition from apathy to action. And, you know, it may or may not be an action we agree with, but it's her version of taking control back of her own life. And so that was actually really, really easy for me to write, especially as Terrain is taking her own control. And I just really wanted to see like um like the best person to have at odds with your protagonist is somebody that you really empathize with. And I mean, what better than like, you know, lovers to enemies. I'm, I'm here for it.
2: I would really like to talk about some of your central relationships stuff. <laughs> I feel like this is way... Sex! <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, there's anyone who follows you on Twitter can see your feed is always full of like glorious fan art, which I'm a little bit jealous of, I have to say. <laughs> So the relationship between like your two central protagonists, Luca and Torain, it's a stand-in, it's a metaphor, it's reflecting what is going on in the, the kind of the greater part of the book. Um, and it's forcing readers to ask things like: Does Luca really love Torain? Is she intoxicated by the idea of the exotic? Is the power balance exploitative? Can they ever trust each other when their goals are so opposed? So why do we really love to read about love affairs that are just not, you know, they're not entirely healthy?
1: Uh, you know, I honestly have no idea. <laughs> I... I mean, apart from the
2: fact that they're also really hot. Well,
1: yeah. And I, you know, I don't, like, I, I, I haven't studied desire in, like, any kind of academic way. I just kind of, I see what we all like. I mean, I've been on AO3. People get up to some stuff on that website. And is it healthy? absolutely probably not but at the same time in this particular exploratory way this is probably the most healthy it can be and so for myself and for the AO3 writers like this is like more power to us <laughs> um but at the same time i think as a writer i am exploring you know these very fraught questions like how to deal with power imbalances in a relationship because arguably there is not a single relationship where the power balance is completely 100% 50-50. Whether you are dating uh, someone who's of the opposite gender of you, someone of the same gender of you, um, non-conforming gender and cisgender, like money, financial differences, racial differences, national differences. Um, there are so many different variations of ways to be put at a slight disadvantage And yet, no one says that you have to only be with someone who matches your status exactly. It would be impossible. And it would also probably be kind of boring. Um, But there is also, the outside of the the social and, and economic aspect of it, there is the actual physical desire aspect that sometimes being at a disadvantage or an advantage can be sexy or desirable for, for, for good or for ill. I mean, like people can do, can use these, um, inappropriately, um, but they can also be done consensually in a way that that all partners agree with and obviously getting to explore that in fiction and in, in this story of empire in particular, um, has been just also just really fun. Um, and so i'm i'm dealing with like the curiosities and the actual like academic question of well academic is very uh generous but M- my one of my questions early on was can you do real enemies like properly enemies to lovers that aren't just like rivals to lovers but like we are at war with each other. And also we love each other. Like what is the result of that kind of story? And is it possible for them to have a happily ever after or not? Like, will something else tear them apart if I'm actually honest or what kind of, um, reparations or forgiveness would have to be done between the two or more (laughs) to, to make it work. Um, so that was one of the things I was really interested in in exploring with this particular story. Probably most of my stories, to be honest.
0: I like how you do mention the uh, sexiness of certain people, and that is the power imbalance. Because honestly, like in my mind, Terrain is like so hot, like unbelievably hot. Just the way these people talk about <laughs> it, I'm just like. <laughs> oh my god <laughs> it's great
1: <laughs> well that was actually that is a side a side tangent but that was one of the things I really wanted to do with these books was just have women desiring people just openly just like you know like men often get to in our world but you know you don't see as much just outward pourings of lust um from women in in the real world media and And so I was like, yeah, these girls are going to be horny. Let's go.
0: Love it. All right. So, I mean, part of the relationship, you you also explore hesitancy on both sides when, you know, entering into a romantic and physical relationship, when things are complicated and you don't know if you can trust the other person and all that sort of thing. I find it interesting because your characters are super passionate, sexy, (laughs) horny, but there's also a lot of hesitancy, you know, they're unsure. They're a little bit, you know, nervous, just like anyone is about, you know, kind of giving their heart away, that sort of thing. And I I was just sort of curious about why you wanted to have that mix. And I mean, obviously – you know, real relationships, quote unquote, you know, in, in the real world obviously have this, but I, I don't know, maybe I'm just not reading enough uh, of this sort of thing. <laughs> I mean, there's certainly, you know, in more and more of it, you know, in things like Winter's Orbit and, but I find it interesting how you managed to sort of mix the kind of the, like the uber passionate, let's just get naked and fuck uh, <laughs> with the, uh, more nuanced. Um, how how do we explore our feelings? How
1: do I trust? How do I let go? Yeah. For me, I think having them having them so hesitant was just a natural result of thinking about their situation very realistically. I mean, I wanted them to be boning in the first book, honestly, <laughs> um, but. Because of their power imbalance, and because I wanted people to actually at least some people, not everybody i'm I'm quite happy f- for the diverging opinions on these two um but I wanted some people at least to root for them, and whenever I had them having sex earlier on and the unbroken um they just the power imbalance was too sharp. they hadn't had enough time to work through the layers that they have between them and there could have been some like accidental moments of passion, but, um, they would have had to do a lot more like of a kind of a, like a post coital postmortem of the situation. Like, did you do that? Cause you wanted to, cause also you're my servant and you don't really have a choice or you could feel like you don't have a choice, but actually you do. But secretly you don't. And I didn't want to, um, I didn't want the, the relationship to be taken in that direction in a way that would kind of negate some of Terrain's agency. And I also wanted Luca to have a chance to be a decent, a more decent human than that. Because um, she's got plenty of other things that are going to make her look real bad. So I wanted her to at least have like one moral boundary that she wouldn't cross. Or at least that she wouldn't cross unless there was like a very clear, like clear consent. Because she has had sex with servants, but it was always very clear. She was very strict about that. She mentions that in The Unbroken. But um, the continued hesitancy also, I mean, for, for, for The Unbroken, part of it was just like the expediency of I have this many words to do all of this stuff in. And so negotiating the relationship could not have that much page space because we would lose all the rest of the book. Um, And I really did want that there to be a kind of arc to their relationship that could span the three books. And so having them separate at the end of The Unbroken also felt like a really strong chance for Terrain to just be like, this is what I'm going to do. And it's separate from you. I am separating myself completely from Balladair for now um, and giving her that space, that chance to, to be her own person for a little while. I also thought that was just really important for her to kind of get out of like, this is something that we, you know, we kind of always do if we like, we're dating someone and then we jump right into the next relationship, something big happens and we jump right into another relationship or something. And so I wanted her to have time to just be her own person. And so, you know, she explores things with other people. Luca has her own things that, you know, they have a year off in between the unbroken and the faithless, basically to work on their own political things. And then that takes me to the next part is like, they have, they have what is for them kind of like world ending problems to solve. And yes, they are horny, but at the same time, they're also really stressed out. (laughs) And so They have other things on their mind. And sometimes, yes, those other things don't matter. And they find a way because they found the will. But most of the time, I did want to let them just actually acknowledge the fact that their positions and the politics are in the way. And to cut through them, even when they are on a more equal playing field, um, to cut through them is a is a lot of work. And they had to do that over time, not instantly. Like Luca did a lot of messed up stuff and Terrain's not going to immediately forget that without some legwork on her part.
2: Your
0: women might be horny, but they're also quite powerful um, and very powerful in their own way. Often when we're given kick-ass women in fiction, they are solely inhabiting the more masculine space, but you can't balance this with multiple perspectives.
2: So what did you hope to highlight about women's
1: power in this
2: way? It's
1: interesting that you ask that, because what I actually wanted to do... um, I've mentioned this um, other places before, but your question kind of makes me think of it in a new perspective. So when I was originally coming up with the idea for uh, The Unbroken, what I really wanted to do was write about women who were willing to kill. Um, And not always just willing, but wanted to kill. Because I I was um, doing an independent study where I, I was looking for violent women in fiction, especially Fantasy and sci fi and stuff. And everyone was only allowed to be violent, either in defense of themselves or their virtue or in defense of children. Um, And I wanted some women who were just like, no, I'm going to be violent because I want something and there are people in my way. In writing these women who want to do that, I wanted to have people who were violent in a lot of different ways. So we have, um, Luca, who's violent as a politician, Terrain, who is violent physically, Jasha, who's more like, um, I would say she's more of an assassin slash spy master type of violence, um, Jagatai as well, um, also physical. And then we also have Arnan, who is, well, I won't call her violent per se. Um, she she doesn't want to be. She tries not to be. But she does have a lot of power. All of these violent women, um, they bend to her in a lot of different ways, especially in um, in The Faithless. And I think part of that was just I wanted to have a lot of different women. And it's one of the cool things that happens when you have a cast that's almost all women. Um, you get to just show... A lot of different ways that women can be and that's one of the things that I always want to do is just to turn a different I don't know turn like different lenses on the people that we assume are all like this whether it's um like whether it's women or whether it's colonized people whether it's soldiers or um whatever the case I just really wanted to you know let them be different oh and then there's Melika I forgot about her She's violent and like, like that sort of stereotypical, almost femme seductrice kind of way, except she can throw daggers, which I just like, it's just too hot. Dagger throwing is hot. And so I was like, well, clearly she has to throw daggers, but she's also a seamstress. So she gets all the good gossip and stuff. And so she, you know, works kind of in that way. And it's just, it was just really fun.
0: <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, I, this is completely weird and tangential, but it made me think of it. So um, I used to work in academic publishing and I remember working on this book, which was like an encyclopedia of people who were important in the American civil war, very specific. Um, But I remember getting fascinated by the entries on women, which you, didn't normally see when learning about something like the American civil war, you know, it's usually about the generals and know, politicians, maybe some soldiers, things like that, you know, and they're usually male. And then I was just reading these entries and it was all about these women who just did some extraordinary things, but, you know, as it often happens, tend to get listed, uh, left out of the, the history books as such. Um, And, you know, and you had these people who were working as spies because people didn't expect them, you know, people who were just just waitresses who were also feeding information or you had women who were just, you know, do – I want to say the Milan thing and just chopped their hair and suddenly people were like, oh, well, she has short hair then clearly she is boy. (laughs) (laughs) Fight the other men, you know. Um, But it was really interesting to see that because it feels like something that we don't get to see a lot of or like the stories that we don't see a lot. So I think with your books, like as you say, just having a cast of all these characters, it gives us an opportunity to see that there are, all these different kinds of women and they do all these different kinds of things, (laughs) you know, they don't, they don't have to be just one type of person or anything like that. But I do find it interesting that you were talking about how you wanted to have all these women be violent in different ways, because I do think that women aren't generally allowed to be violent in fiction without being cast as the villain, which again, yours is, you know, more nuanced than that because, you know, if someone comes to these books and says, okay, well, I don't know, Luca is the villain. Mm, Is she? Uh, You know, there's so (laughs) much around it that she's also a protagonist as well as potentially a villain, but then it's just different and (laughs) refreshing that, you've given us these characters who are allowed to be more than one thing. And they're not necessarily pigeonholed. Mm -hmm.
1: That was something that I wanted to achieve. So I'm glad, um, I'm glad you feel that way.
0: Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, also like, I think it's, it's something that comes up, a lot when we, we talk about like kick-ass women or badass women and mm-hmm. kind of have the, the thing where they're allowed to be physically amazing and somehow that's a kind of stand in for, I don't know, agency or just mm-hmm, well-rounded mm-hmm. personality.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, it's like that. you give them muscles and they, there's, that's, that's, that's their only character trait. <laughs> um, And I didn't, yeah, I definitely didn't want that for sure. Um, but I also didn't want any of them to make excuses for the way they are or the things that they want. And, um, that was something that I found too often in the examples I found when I was doing my research. Um, like, I think one of the only people that I really found and was like, Oh, this is an interesting portrayal of female violence was actually like Xena. Um, because, you know, Amazing. like, yes. while she is working on atonement, you know, she's trying to atone for her, her sins or whatever. Um, She doesn't stop killing. Like, she, you know, she goes through the whole journey and she's eventually like, this is just who I am. So I'm going to do it really, really well. And hopefully in service of good, but not always, because sometimes, you know, I slip, I'm human, like, whatever. And I, w- I really, I just was like, yeah, this is, this is how how we should be and not everyone is going to want atonement which is cool so
0: I'm so glad we managed to get Xena in there
1: (laughs) of course
0: okay well thank you so much Shreve for joining us it's been amazing and as listeners can probably tell I'm quite a big fan and I have a major crush on terrain because I mean who wouldn't at this point if (laughs) any of the uh lustful descriptions (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much for just showing us what women can do and can be in all our different wonderful guises uh it's amazing
1: thank you so much thanks for having me
0: breaking the glass slipper is written and produced by megan lee charlotte bond and lucy houndsom please help us spread the word subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform we want to hear from you Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.